0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. Anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry without the hype and distortion and misinformation of other sources Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome again to those of you listening in on AmericasWebRadio.com and especially a shout out to those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for your support of Psychiatry Today. This show was recorded for airing first on February the 18th, 2015, and as always, a lot of very interesting things happened relating to the world of mental health since we last got together, but this first item uh, I thought was of particular importance. It's about supplements, health-related supplements that certain people who tested them found were mostly just fillers and not at all what they are labeled to be. Now, the article did not have to do simply with supplements that are sold to promote better mental health, but I definitely think it's worthy of discussing on a psychiatry and mental health related show such as mine because there are so many supplements that are sold to improve mood and mental functioning. Uh, For depression, for anxiety, for insomnia, for improved concentration, for improved memory, there are lots and lots of supplements sold for these purposes. So therefore, I think anything that in general calls into question the quality or purity or effectiveness of supplements is definitely worth bringing up because a lot of people don't like taking prescription psychiatric medication for their mental health problems. They prefer to take something quote-unquote natural. Uh, I always like to point out to people, natural doesn't always mean it's good for you, for example, arsenic and strychnine. Uh, The other thing is that while pharmaceuticals may not be quote-unquote natural, they have been fully and thoroughly vetted and tested for effectiveness and safety for years before they are sold to the general public, whereas supplements are not subject to such rigorous scrutiny. And due to a very unfortunate law that dates back to 1994, supplements may not be regulated by the FDA. There is no strict requirement for safety and testing, as has always been the case for pharmaceuticals. And therefore, the unsuspecting public can buy them and not be confident that they're safe, that they're effective, and most of all, as this article that we're about to go over shows, the buying public cannot even be confident that what's in the bottle of supplements they're buying is what it says on the label. And that's the scariest part. While the safety and effectiveness can be debated, what if you're not even getting what you think you're buying? Uh, well, again, to me, this is just another argument against using supplements. So let's see what the article has to say. And there's certainly been a lot of controversy about this study that we're about to go over since uh, it was first published. Now, the bottles of Walmart brand Echinacea uh, was one example of the supplements that were tested. Echinacea is an herb herb said to ward off colds, which, by the way, there's no science to back up that claim, but regardless, they were found to contain no echinacea at all. GNC brand bottles of St. John's wort touted as a cure for depression, and by the way, I will also mention that years and years ago, the National Institutes of Health, our government- Healthcare research agency with no ties to the pharmaceutical industry at all, and no proprietary interest in any supplements, desperately tried to get St. John's wort to work for depression. They could not get it to work. Please, folks, it's all hype and no help. It does nothing. Well, anyway, GNC's brand of it was found to have rice, garlic, and a tropical house plant, but not a trace of St. John's wort in it. In fact, it was DNA testing on hundreds of bottles of store-brand herbal supplements sold as treatments for everything from memory loss to prostate trouble found that four out of five contained none of the herbs on the label. Instead, they were packed with cheap fillers such as wheat, rice, beans or house plants. Based on the testing commissioned by his office, New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman said that he has sent letters to the four major chain stores involved. We've already mentioned Walmart and GNC, was also Target and Walgreens. He sent them letters demanding that they immediately stop selling adulterated or mislabeled dietary supplements. Schneiderman said the supplements pose serious risks. For example, as you might have already thought about when I told you that they have all these other strange ingredients, what about people who have allergies or are taking certain medications that can suffer dangerous reactions from these herbal concoctions that contain substances not listed on the label? The investigation makes things clear. The old adage, buyer beware, is especially true for consumers of these supplements. Now, as you might expect, the herbal supplement industry criticized the method used to analyze the samples and raised questions about the reliability of the findings. A spokesman for Walmart said the company is reaching out to suppliers and will take appropriate action. Walgreens pledged to cooperate with the Attorney General who asked the store chains for detailed information on production and quality control. A Walgreens spokesman said, we take these issues very seriously and as a precautionary measure We are in the process of removing these products from our shelves as we review this matter further. GNC said it, too, will cooperate, but their spokesman said, We stand by the quality, purity, and potency of all ingredients listed on the labels of our private label products. Target would not comment without viewing the full report. The Food and Drug Administration requires companies to verify their products are safe and properly labeled. But supplements, as I said before, are exempt from the FDA's strict approval process for prescription drugs. Schneiderman said tests found no echinacea or any other plant material in bottles of Walmart's Spring Valley echinacea. He said, No ginseng was found in 20 tests of GNC's Herbal Plus ginseng, which is taken in order to boost energy. Other supplements tested, including garlic, which is said to boost immunity and prevent heart disease. Ginkgo biloba, often touted as a memory booster, But I will tell you, when hard science is done to test ginkgo biloba, it does nothing to improve memory or concentration. And saw palmetto promoted as a prostate health treatment. DNA tests found such substances as rice, beans, pine, citrus, asparagus, primrose, wheat, houseplant, wild carrot, and unidentified non-plant material, none of which were mentioned on the label. The store chain with the poorest showing was Walmart, where only 4% of the products tested showed DNA from the plants listed on the label. The investigation looked at six herbal supplements sold at stores across the state of New York. The testing was done by an expert in DNA technology, James Schulte of Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York. The DNA tests were done on three to four samples of each supplement purchased. Each sample was tested five times. Overall, 390 tests involving 78 samples were conducted. The president and CEO of the Council for Responsible Nutrition, a dietary supplement trade group, criticized the testing procedure and accused Schneiderman of engaging in a self-serving publicity stunt under the guise of protecting public health. And he went on to say, processing during manufacturing of botanical supplements can remove or damage DNA. As a result, he said, DNA analysis may be the wrong test for these kinds of products. And that has been the crux of the argument uh, against the findings of this study, that the supplement industry and, and others have criticized you know, the DNA analysis as not a truly reliable or accurate way to test what exactly in, is inside these supplement bottles or not. Well, there. Uh, this certainly raises a lot of questions, and I think in general people should not be taking these things uh, until and unless they clearly uh, are shown to be of benefit. Well, we'll get back to this after a short break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today
0: with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
2: Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or c- catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts.
0: Have you tuned into The Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio.
2: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and your source for all mental health-related news. We're talking about testing of supplements sold in major chain stores found to contain plant material, fillers, but anything but was on the label. Now, hopefully, those of you who are on supplements have been listening closely. Uh, if you know people who take them, you should have them listen to this and uh, go back uh, to the top of tonight's show to hear the first segment. But uh, now, let me just go over the major findings Uh, by this investigation done by the New York State Attorney General's office into... Now, this is store-brand herbal supplements, mind you, not uh, the proprietary brands. The store-brand supplements sold by GNC, Target, Walmart, and Walgreens. At GNC, they ran 120 DNA tests on 24 bottles of the herbal products purchased, DNA matched the label identification only 22% of the time, less than a quarter of the time. Among the contaminants identified, asparagus, rice, primrose, alfalfa and clover, and spruce. At Target, there were 90 DNA tests run on 18 bottles. DNA matched label identification 41% of the time, much better Among contaminants identified, allium, French bean, asparagus, pea, wild carrot, and saw palmetto. Interesting that that was a contaminant because it's also sold as a supplement. At Walgreens, 90 tests were run on 18 bottles. DNA matched label representation 18% of the time. And then at Walmart, which we already talked about before, did the worst. 90 DNA tests run on 18 bottles. DNA matched the label representation only 4% of the time. And among the contaminants identified there, pine, wheat, grass, rice mustard, and citrus. Hmm. Well, it sounds like if you're going to buy store-brand supplements... You better buy them at Target and not go to Walmart, Walgreens, or GNC. Better yet, don't waste your money on these things. They don't work anyway. And just instead, concentrate on eating a good, healthy diet. Lots of green, leafy vegetables and fresh fruits. And uh, also healthy fats, healthy protein, like like nuts uh, and fish. And you'll get all the nutrients that you need, but uh, these supplements are—you um, know—there's more and more evidence they not only don't do anything, but now if you can't even say you're buying what you think you are, it's a total waste. All right. Well, next up on tonight's show, long-time listeners and regulars to this show will know that I often talk about the benefits of getting a good night's sleep. And we've talked about things that interfere with sleep, like exercising too late in the evening, using screens with bright displays late in the evening. And we've also talked about how much is enough sleep, right? A minimum is seven hours. More than eight and a half is too much. Well, this study caught my eye, Because as much as we all know that uh, when we're not getting enough sleep and how much sleep we really need, um, let's face it, too many of us really can't or won't or don't, for different reasons, do anything to address it. So here's finally some good news for those people who don't get enough sleep. Napping reverses the health effects of poor sleep. Now, I know what you're going to say. How how does that help if I don't have time to take a nap? Well, I agree that's uh, potentially a problem, but at least let's go over this. A short nap now, doesn't have to be a long one, a short nap can help relieve stress and bolster the immune systems of men who slept only two hours the previous night. Now, of course, uh, that's not realistic. Most people sleep more than two hours, but... Anyway, let's go over the findings and see how they can be applicable to everyday life. This study was published in the Endocrine Society's Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Lack of sleep is recognized as a public health problem. Insufficient sleep can contribute to reduced productivity as well as vehicle and industrial accidents. That, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. In addition, people who sleep too little are more likely to develop chronic diseases, such as obesity, and then diabetes and high blood pressure, as well as depression. Nearly 3 in 10 adults reported that they slept an average of 6 hours or less a night according to the National Health Interview Survey. The data from this study suggests a 30-minute nap can reverse the hormonal impact of a night of poor sleep. This is the first study, according to the authors, that found that napping could restore biomarkers of neuroendocrine and immune health to normal levels. Researchers examined the relationship between hormones and sleep in a group of 11 healthy men between the ages of 25 and 32. The men underwent two sessions of sleep testing in a laboratory where meals and lighting were strictly controlled. During one session, the men were limited to two hours of sleep for one night. For the other session, subjects were able to take two 30-minute naps the day after their sleep was restricted to two hours. Each of the three-day sessions began with a night where subjects spent eight hours in bed and concluded with a recovery night of unlimited sleep. Researchers analyzed the participants' urine and saliva to determine how restricted sleep and napping altered hormone levels. After a night of limited sleep, the men had a two-and-a-half-fold increase in levels of norepinephrine, a hormone and neurotransmitter involved in the body's fight-or-flight response to stress. You've heard of adrenaline rushes, right? Well, adrenaline or uh, is just another name for uh, noradrenaline or norepinephrine. Norepinephrine increases the body's heart rate, blood pressure, and blood sugar. Researchers found no change in norepinephrine levels when the men had napped following a night of limited sleep. Hence, their claim that it reverses the napping, reverses the hormonal negative impact of lack of enough sleep. Now, lack of sleep also affected the levels of something called interleukin-6. This is a protein with antiviral properties and it was tested and measured in the subject's saliva. The levels of interleukin-6 dropped after a night of restricted sleep but remained normal when the subjects were allowed to nap. These changes suggest Naps can be beneficial for the immune system. So napping may offer a way to counter the damaging effects of sleep restriction by helping the immune and endocrine systems to recover. These findings support the development of practical strategies for addressing chronically sleep-deprived populations, such as night and shift workers. Well, there you go. So, again, I can hear a lot of people sort of saying, well, that's great. Um, half an hour nap reverses the effects of not getting enough sleep, but uh, I don't even have a half an hour to stop during the day to take a nap. So how does this help me? Well, you may have a point, but on the other hand, the vast majority of people... Are not so sleep deprived that they're only getting two hours, like the subjects in this study. Uh, again, you know the article cited recent data from a National Health Information Survey that showed that almost a third of people get six hours of sleep or less, you know, less than the recommended seven. But that doesn't mean they're getting two. Uh, it'd be nice. If they did something that was more real life, so that we'd be able to say, well, if a half an hour nap can counteract the effects of only getting two hours of sleep the night before, what happens if you slept five or six and you take a 15 or 20 minute nap during the day? And that might be more realistic to get busy people to say, hmm, you know, I'm just going to stop take a little nap here. Well, even though we might not have the hard science to back it up like what these researchers did here, I definitely think it's more than reasonable to speculate that a little power nap can be surprisingly refreshing and restorative and helpful and healthful, even if we can't document that it would reverse these hormonal problems associated with lack of sleep. Uh, napping is, generally speaking, thought to be helpful, and as long as it doesn't happen too late in the afternoon, say maybe you know before 5 or 6 in the evening, and also that it's not so prolonged, maybe 30, 45 minutes tops an hour, not longer than that, uh, then it's not likely to interfere with sleeping during the night if you decide you might want to try taking a nap and seeing if it would help you feel better, I think uh, it's important to keep in mind knowing yourself and your body and you'll quickly realize how long a nap will be refreshing versus how long a nap will be too long and will make you feel sluggish and lethargic the rest of the day after you get up from your nap. And likewise, uh, you'll quickly find out how late you can get away with taking your nap, how late in the day, I mean, uh, without disrupting your sleep during the night. Uh, but it definitely would be an a healthful and important thing to start doing, especially if you're not getting enough sleep during the night. Just keep it brief and keep it early enough in the day. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, more mental health-related news. With your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Be right back after this break.
2: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible
0: donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to
2: cope with the disease of addiction. If not... or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com The best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay here with you giving you all the latest mental health related news. Now, let's talk about People who take painkillers and not necessarily even people who abuse them, but people who take them regularly, perhaps in fairly high doses, especially because of chronic pain. Uh, if you or someone close to you is in that situation, you want to listen up to this next item on tonight's show because it turns out that higher doses of narcotic painkillers are associated with an increase in depression. Now, patients who increased their doses of their painkillers to manage chronic pain were more likely to experience an increase in depression. According to this latest study published in the journal uh, called Pain, the February 15 edition of that, uh, and the study is called change in opioid dose and change in depression in a longitudinal primary care patient cohort. Uh, opioids are narcotic painkillers. Um, they're called that because they're ultimately derived from the opium poppy and morphine and you know other derivatives thereof. And the longitudinal primary care patient cohort in English means they took a bunch of patients in a primary care practice and followed them over a long period of time uh, as to what happened with their dose of the painkillers and any uh, issues with depression. Uh, <clears throat> the study expands findings from a previous study of Veterans Administration Patients they studied questionnaires from 355 patients in nine different primary care practices in the Residency Research Network of Texas. These are people who initially reported chronic low back pain, and then they looked at them at one- and two-year follow-ups. The respondents to the survey were <clears throat> overwhelmingly female That's 72.4%. Overwhelmingly middle-aged or older than 46 in any case, 75.2%. And mostly of Hispanic or African American descent, 57.5%. The patients reported the number of years they had been experiencing chronic pain. Previous research had found depression to be linked with patients narcotic painkiller use, but this study has identified the association between an increase in such use and an increase in depression. Contributing factors for cases of new-onset depression, according to this study and previous research, may include both the amount of daily morphine equivalent exposure and the duration of the exposure. And they recommend further study to determine whether patients are at risk due to past episodes of depression or recent depressive symptoms. The results, though, support the conclusion that most of the risk of depression is driven by the duration of use and not the dose. A strong potential explanation of the finding that increasing the dose of these narcotic painkillers increases the risk of depression could be that the patients who increased their dose were the longer-using patients. This is logical as longer use is associated with tolerance and a need to increase the dose of the narcotic painkillers in order to achieve pain relief. They hope to find risk factors such as misuse of these painkillers that could be in the pathway from chronic painkiller use to new onset depression. This would expand the targets for intervention to limit the risk of depression in patients who need long-term narcotic painkiller treatment. So the take-home message, again, as I said, those people who are on narcotic painkillers and uh, use them in the long term for chronic pain, there is an increased risk of depression, especially if they're increasing their dose of the painkiller, so they should be monitored for that carefully. All right, next up on tonight's show... Let's talk about veterans and military mental health. Now, first of two articles. Uh, This happened on February the 5th when uh, Senator Johnny Isakson from Georgia, a day after endorsing the Atlanta... Veterans Administration's leadership in comments about the case of a Marine veteran who killed herself and her three children, Uh, he called for an independent investigation into the circumstances of the former Marine's death, and uh, sorry, I guess the statement came out on Wednesday, February the 4th, and in the statement, Isaacson said that the Veterans Administration's Office of Inspector General should conduct an investigation to ensure that all clinical and medical care procedures were followed on behalf of the veteran. The Inspector General's investigation would be separate from the internal probe that the Department of Veterans Affairs announced the previous week. Keisha Holmes, who was 35, was living in Veterans Administration subsidized housing in Austell, Georgia. According to her medical records, she was at high risk of suicide. She had missed three appointments with Veterans Administration staff, including an appointment on the day her body was discovered, That was January 27th of this year. She took her life, and uh, that was only after she had killed her three children. Isaacson said he wants investigators to determine if there was an unlawful release of the medical records of the veteran, and if so, by whom. At a news conference, he expressed his continued confidence in the Atlanta VA Medical Center Director Leslie Wiggins, who was installed as the hospital reckoned with scandals involving veterans' suicides in 2013. Isaacson said the hospital, quote, has done a wonderful job, unquote, on keeping in close contact with mental health patients. And as of yet, it is still not clear where the breakdown came from and how it happened that allowed Keisha Holmes uh, to miss three appointments United States Representative Jeff Miller of Florida chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee joined Isaacson in calling for the Inspector General's investigation into the case adding extra urgency to the request Last year, the committee held numerous high-profile hearings into failings at the VA, including how the agency is dealing with a high incidence of suicide among vets. Now, in a uh, related story, President Obama signed a Veterans Suicide Prevention Bill Uh, Acknowledging the struggles of the nation's veterans, President signed the bill on Thursday, the 12th of February. The legislation is intended to reduce the high rate of suicide that is claiming the lives of soldiers and former members of the military by the day. The law, which had broad support from Republicans and Democrats, and this is typical of legislation involving veterans, it's one of the few things that has gotten around the partisan bickering in Washington, it requires the Pentagon and the Veterans Affairs Department to submit to independent reviews of their suicide prevention programs and make information on suicide prevention more easily available to veterans. The law also offers financial incentives to psychiatrists and other mental health professionals who agree to work for the VA and assist military members as they transition from active duty to veteran status. A 2013 VA study reported that veterans were committing suicide at a rate of 22 a day in 2010, with nearly 70% of them being aged 50 or older. The incidence of post-traumatic stress among soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan has also attracted widespread attention. The bill carries the name of Clay Hunt, a 26-year-old Marine veteran who struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder after serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hunt killed himself in 2011 in Texas. Among those who attended the signing of the bill were Republican Senators John McCain, a frequent critic of Obama's military policy, and again Johnny Isakson of Georgia, who is the new chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee and a champion of the bill. Well, this is an excellent step in the right direction. The legislation uh, certainly shines a brighter spotlight on this issue and the very disturbing trend showing a much higher rate of suicide in the military than in the civilian population and also providing resources for greater mental health care uh, of our veterans. And certainly, you know, anytime you have the government offering to relieve uh, student debt in this day and age, especially from medical school in return for psychiatrists who finish a psychiatry residency to practice uh, in the VA, uh, certainly should... Increase the resources available for the mental health care of our veterans and hopefully save lives by preventing suicide. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be right back with more
0: on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio.
2: or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. Next up on tonight's show, what about having a brain scan? to be able to predict what type of treatment will work for your depression, either talk therapy or medication, perhaps both? Well, University of North Carolina School of Medicine researchers have shown that brain scans can predict which patients with clinical depression are most likely to benefit from a specific kind of talk therapy. The study, which was published in the journal, neuropsychopharmacology is the first to use a technique known as resting state functional brain connectivity MRI to identify differences in brain wiring that predict therapeutic responses to talk therapy. The research shows that brain scans could ultimately be used as a diagnostic tool to determine the best course of treatment for the millions of Americans that suffer from depression. In the future, we may be able to use non-invasive brain imaging technology to match patients with the treatment option that has the best chance of lifting their depression. We already have a lot of excellent treatments for depression, but no way to know which one is best for a particular patient. If doctors can identify the best treatment immediately, then doctors and patients could avoid months of trial and error, thus dramatically reducing the often debilitating effects of depression for patients and their families. Major depressive disorder, also known as clinical depression, is now the second leading cause of disability worldwide. Approximately one in six people will experience at least one bout of depression, and many will suffer multiple bouts over the course of their lives. Although antidepressant medications, different kinds of talk therapies, and brain stimulation can be effective, 40% of people are not helped by the first treatment they try. As a result, it can take patients' multiple attempts with different treatments before they experience any relief. Recently, the researchers shifted their focus to explore ways to treat patients more effectively. They began studying whether brain scans could predict which patients would respond to a specific kind of talk therapy, an effective treatment that has been shown to change the patterns of brain activities in patients. What they're talking about is that previous studies have already shown before and after differences, people who suffer from depression and were treated only with talk therapy. The researchers recruited 23 patients with major depressive disorder who were not yet being treated. The patients underwent a specific type of brain scan, again known as resting state functional connectivity MRI or RS-FC MRI. This visualizes the coordinated activity of various brain regions within known functional networks of brain cells while the brain is not engaged in any particular tasks. By using this technique, the researchers could identify brain regions that light up or activate in unison. This, in turn, could help them uncover networks of activity that might be linked to certain behaviors or responses to therapy. After the patients were scanned, they met with counselors for an average of 12 weekly talk therapy sessions using a method known as behavioral activation talk therapy, whereas other forms of talk therapy might involve analyzing childhood experiences or altering thought processes. Behavioral activation talk therapy focuses on the immediate behaviors associated with depression, such as difficulty getting to work on time or not spending time with loved ones. During the talk therapy sessions, patients set goals to address these behaviors. The researchers then analyzed the data to spot relationships between brain connectivity and responses to treatment. They found two connectivity patterns that stood out among patients who benefited most from talk therapy. First, these patients had greater connectivity between the anterior insular cortex, a small region involved in assigning importance to events, and the middle temporal gyrus, a section of brain tissue that plays a role in the subjective experience of emotion. Second, patients had stronger connections between something called the intraparietal sulcus, this is a structure involved in maintaining focus, and the orbital frontal cortex, a brain region behind the eyes involved in assigning positive or negative values to events. There is a complex interplay between the regions of the brain that are involved in control of cognitive functions and those reasons involved in understanding how something is going to feel. We've known for a long time that Atypical connections between those regions are involved in depression, but now we can see that they can also be resolved in how a person responds to talk therapy. Researchers plan to extend their imaging studies to explore responsiveness to other forms of talk therapy, also antidepressant medications, and brain stimulation. And hopefully... As they refine this technique and expand it to these other types of treatments, they can then draw conclusions as to who will respond to a range of options. Uh, right now, only being able to show who will respond to this behavioral activation talk therapy. <clears throat> well, that's one problem I have with the research. This is a very highly specialized form of talk therapy, and you're not exactly going to be able to just walk into any therapist's office in your insurance network and expect them to be able to know what this is and uh, to be <clears throat> trained and practiced in it. Well, <clears throat> next up on tonight's show, here is an item for those of you who had a child with ADHD and struggled to get the child properly diagnosed or treated and struggled with your own decision to even pursue such a diagnosis. Uh, the article was written from the point of view of a mother with ADHD. <clears throat> so this is her describing her daughter and the journey as she went through to get her daughter diagnosed and treated. Uh, her daughter, Rachel, had bigger things to think about than math, science, history, and language arts. They spent hours on homework each night, making up the instruction that was lost to her in the classroom as her mind drifted to loftier pursuits. When she went to her daughter's fourth grade teacher with a concern that she had ADHD, the teacher quickly shut her down. No, Rachel is too nice and tries too hard to have ADHD. Both are true. Despite her intelligence, Rachel had to make a monumental effort every single day to just scratch the surface of what seemed to come so easily to other students. Unfortunately, She trusted the teacher to be an authority on the subject of ADHD. It would be another two years before frustration and concerns about middle school would push her to take Rachel to the family doctor for help. It turns out she was not alone in her situation. A recent Harris Interactive survey pointed out gaping holes in the identification and diagnosis of ADHD in tween girls and confirms that misconceptions and stereotypes are largely to blame. The survey results echoed this woman's own personal experience, including the finding that nearly 50% of moms with tween girls diagnosed with ADHD first considered their daughter's behavior to be part of adolescence. What's more, 59% hesitated to consult a doctor because they thought their daughters would outgrow this behavior. She thought of her daughter's ADHD traits as something that would change as she got older. She ignored and dismissed the struggle because Rachel didn't fit the ADHD stereotypes of being out of control, defiant, unorganized, fidgety, unfocused, and aggressive. But these stereotypes were part of the problem. One reason for the disparity in the diagnosis between boys and girls is how differently they manifest hyperactivity. Chattiness and daydreaming are often dismissed as normal girl behavior rather than signs of hyperactivity, which they are. In addition, the subtypes of ADHD, hyperactive impulsive, inattentive, and combined, more girls are diagnosed with inattentive type. Stereotypes of ADHD revolve around how boys exhibit symptoms, and those symptoms are largely disruptive in a classroom, easier to spot and more likely to get teachers talking to parents. Without the stereotypical markers, many girls go undiagnosed for years. Even when she did finally bring it up with her family doctor, she approached the subject with great hesitation, but the doctor was quick to jump in and assure her she was not overreacting by bringing it to his attention. She also fell into the 60% of moms in the survey who wished they had recognized the symptoms in their daughter's earlier and acted on it sooner. She went on to get the daughter's younger siblings diagnosed and treated and realized what a difference having that diagnosis, understanding, and intervention had made for the younger children. Understanding the truth about ADHD in girls is critical, especially when going into the teen years. Shame and guilt, depression and anxiety, self-harm and eating disorders have all been found to be more prevalent in young women with ADHD than in their peers. No parent wants to face these kinds of struggles with their children. So many moms continue to struggle with this issue, wondering, is this behavior normal, hoping their daughters will outgrow it and debating whether to talk to their doctors. It makes it clear the long road ahead in terms of making sure these stereotypes, myths, and misunderstandings are hopefully eventually replaced with knowledge, acceptance, and early intervention. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the information that I certainly enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it informative. And I sincerely hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.